Welcome to episode number three of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring AD and producer Tim Zinneman. As an AD, Mr. Zinneman has worked with such directors as Billy Wilder, Mike Nichols, Mark Rydell, Peter Yates, John Schlesinger, and Bob Rafelson. As a producer, he worked with Dustin Hoffman on Straight Time and was instrumental in bringing Kevin Costner to the screen in his first leading role in the film Fandango. We also discussed Mr. Zinneman's involvement in one of the most famous car chase scenes in all of cinema history. That's Steve McQueen chasing down a criminal through the streets of San Francisco in bullets. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to take a look at our Road to Cinema blog, and to learn more about our Road to Cinema web series on YouTube, please visit jogroadproductions.com or Jog Road Productions on YouTube. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter for the latest updates at Jog Road. Now we join our conversation with Tim Zinneman as he discusses his father, Oscar-winning director Fred Zinneman. So um, uh, Noah's a child growing up. He uh, kept me far away from the set and my only experience of any kind was that at 14 I was an extra on Oklahoma so I got to got paid to ride a horse for a summer and that was about it so I, I um, yeah he wanted me to become a doctor or something else <laughs> as did his father before him so he had the same kind of fight with his own dad and in the 20s. So. Did you express a lot of interest with him about going into film? No, actually I, I didn't because I didn't particularly have any and I wanted to be a photographer, which is really what I wanted to do. And he told me, well, photography is great as a hobby, but it's not a career, was his, what he said, and just go to college and get an education. Yeah. And what did uh, you study at Columbia? Uh, well, actually, I went to Kenyon more. I just went to Columbia for a semester and quit. But um, I went to Kenyon College and it was a liberal arts education, mostly philosophy, which I really detested in the end. <laughs> so um, I sort of uh, got into movies through the theater by... I, I was able to get a job as an apprentice at the Westport Playhouse uh, on what was called the Straw Circuit, where they would try out plays for Broadway. They take a number of like 10 or 15 apprentices every summer, and that's where I really first became knew that I would be interested in entertainment in some form. So. Uh-huh. What uh, type of things did you do at West? Were you stage manager? Or uh, you... Well, it was a professional theater. It was a, a thousand-seat theater, and they every week they'd rotate you with one department or another, uh, whether it was uh, working the parking lot or with the electrician or whatever. You know, and the yeah. best job was being a state assistant stage manager. Mm-hmm. So. And they also, you had to do bit parts as an actor, which I had to also do, so, which I detested. <laughs> so, so um, did uh, you eventually work as an assistant editor in Rome, or was that uh, a while yeah, later? Yeah, I mean, that's what happened. I guess when I, I was going to Columbia, and I was really sort of had lost the, you know, I just had lost it. I wasn't interested in college, and I started doing um, 
the models' portfolios, and through through that I got a chance to be an assistant for Abaddon, and the, the the same day that that happened, I got a call from my father's film editor on Nun's story who said um, he was going to Rome to do a picture, and if I wanted to come and live in his house and work as an apprentice for the summer, I could do it. Wow. So I, I leaped at the opportunity, basically. And um, at the end of the summer, I mean, basically all I did all summer was what they called hot splicing film, which is what you did in those days. And um, another American picture was coming in at the time, and they wanted a, an experienced assistant film ed editor who knew the American system and who was bilingual. And so I raised my hand, and I didn't speak a word of <laughs> Italian, and I certainly wasn't uh, much of an assistant at that point. So I got the job and um, met a girl, learned Italian, <laughs> got trained by a very nice film editor who sort of overlooked my flaws and to, to sort of taught me what to do and then so I, I wound up staying there for four years and um, it was a, a time where there was a lot of money that was from Hollywood that was stuck in Europe and they so they basically had to make movies in Europe or pay taxes on all this money that they had over there so it was a, a period where there was what they called runaway productions a lot in Italy and some later in uh, Spain. And so the studios were using all their money for foreign productions. So I, I was able to have a very nice career over there. And uh, I got on to, I think it was 1963, I was hired to do um, The Pink Panther. And th through Blake Edwards and the Ralph Winters, they agreed to bring me back to Hollywood to finish the picture. And um, I think Blake had gotten a waiver f for me from um, the Guild, the Editors Union, and I, when I got back here they reneged. And uh, they said I could finish the picture but I couldn't get in. And I guess apparently he got kind of furious that this had happened. And, through him and my father and others, I got into the director's guild, mm. not knowing what an assistant director <laughs> did or care, nor did I care, but I um, became an assistant director that way, not out of choice, but just, it's what happened to me. So, <laughs> so um, and I mean, I was very lucky. I mean, I, I don't think I appreciated it at the time, and I was... Um, hired to work for the Mirish Company, which was sort of the triple A leagues of those days. A lot of Billy Wilder movies and uh, Yeah, I mean it was some Pink like Panther as well. Well yeah. they did the pink that's yeah. how my entree was. But I mean yes, it was all the, the Billy Wilder and uh, Robert Wise Sound of Music West Side Story. So there was a ton of wonderful filmmakers working and um, I, I was very lucky to be able to work for that company and for those people. And was Kiss Me Stupid uh, the first uh, production that you had worked on? No, there was actually one before that that John Sturgis directed called a memorable picture called uh, 
the Satan bug <laughs> with George Meharris and somebody else. Richard Basehart was the mad scientist who was spreading botulism throughout the world. <laughs> and my first assignment as a second assistant was that we were shooting on a golf course and the first shot was a helicopter shot from of all these dead golfers lying all over the place. And um, I was told that I there were some old guys playing golf I don't know, hold number nine or something. So I was told, go to tell those guys to duck behind a tree we're going to shoot. <laughs> so I, I went over to say, excuse me, sir, but we're making a movie and all this. And they said, we don't give a damn. And, you know, get out, you're ruining our game and, you know, screw you. And, and uh, so they had, we had to wait for them to play nine holes of golf with the, the whole crew watching them. And because of me, you know, so that was my first sort of assignment that I blew as a second. But uh, anyway, go ahead and ask whatever. Uh, well, what did you see as um, some of the essential tools that you needed to learn uh, to really be a, a great assistant director at the beginning? Well, I mean, in the beginning, you're a gopher and you're just doing what you're told. So I, um, I worked a lot for, at the time, a really good first assistant, uh, luckily, who had done The Great Escape, among other pictures, and worked with Steve McQueen a lot, and so I learned a lot from him. I mean, basically, you're standing, you're like a soldier standing at attention right next to the guy who tells you to go do this or go do that, and it's, you just go do what it is you're told to do, pretty much. And... Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with being t to thinking ahead of what's going to happen next and, and to be quite to learn to be very logical about things and to be to as the first AD is to have an A plan, a B plan and a C plan and, and be totally prepared but also be prepared for chaos and to be able to have a solution for the chaos, you know, so yeah. that's uh, but I mean, you learn it over time. You certainly don't learn it in a day. And a lot of it has to do, uh, as an assistant, with your uh, relationships with the director, the cameraman, you know, earning the respect of the crew. So you basically have to know what everybody's job is. And uh, being able to deal with feisty actors, you know, and diplom in a diplomatic way. So there's a lot of moving parts to being a good assistant, I'd say. Did uh, you see at a certain point working with so many directors that each one had their own particular style of breaking down a script and how they really saw everything being executed and how yeah. they worked with their ADs? Sure. Well, I mean, actually, the assistant is the first assistant is the one that breaks the script down. And the, so when you're hired initially, you are, you are the one that puts it all together. And you're told usually, that, you know, we want to do this and nine weeks or 12 weeks or we only have this much money so you have to bear those kind of things in mind but so you you sort of lay it out for the director who says oh I want to shoot in continuity or I don't care you know some are much more practical than others some want to sh shoot everything in continuity it just depends on the person you know yeah um, 
I mean, I had an opportunity as a first to work with a lot of really talented, interesting guys like uh, Mark Rydell and Mike Nichols and Peter Yates was just coming off with his first picture to, to do Bullets. I mean, I, I had a chance to work with a lot of really... Bullets seems like a really incredible movie to organize in terms of, you know, you have the famous uh, car chase sequence, of course, in the streets yeah. of San Francisco and so many locations right. and so many big action sequences. But um, mm -hmm. for something like the car chase sequence, how do you even begin to organize that with the crew and uh, the city? And What happened with the car chase uh, scene, it was all laid out by a guy named Kerry Lofton who did, among other many other things, Mad Mad World. And so he had sort of laid it all out. And then we had a big meeting and he was showing the director and McQueen and me and everybody what it was. And then I think it was mostly McQueen just said, this is crap. I, and threw it out and just said, this is ridiculous. I don't want to do this kind of a thing. You know, it was like screeching into an alley and bursting through a bunch of boxes and that kind of stuff. Sort of typical stuntman things. So what what happened is that we would meet every morning in the parking lot of the Grace Cathedral so the company would be there. And uh, McQueen took a quite an active role in in the creation of the chase, actually. And so we would do one stunt in the morning and one stunt in the afternoon and you know we figure out okay we're gonna do the why don't we have the cars jump down the hill that'll be fun <laughs> so we'll, we'd go scout it out and figure and then place the cameras wherever and then it was my job to basically lock it off so at one point there was 60 blocks locked off on a, on a Tuesday Noon. At one time, there were yeah. sixty. Wow, that's incredible. And, and well, I mean, I who knows locked off. It was, yeah, <laughs> uh, it meant that I had the entire crew holding holding streets. You know, so it was just civilians saying, you know, just a minute, please. We're going to fly down this hill, and you better be careful. <laughs> so I mean, anything could have happened at any time, but luckily, nothing ever did. So. Was it planned out uh, shot by shot? Like a very extensive shot list? No, I mean, what happened with that particular movie was there was a script that was essentially thrown out on day one, and we had a guy named Harry Kleiner hired as a writer to come in, and he, he was on the set, and he'd go write a scene where we'd say, you know, the, hey, Harry, how about we do something in the kitchen here to come up with something? So he'd go running up and write something saying, here, I got this. And that that's kind of how the whole movie was done. It was winged. Wow. And um, people's parts got bigger, smaller. Like Bob DeVal was a, was supposed to have a supporting role in the thing, and he was a, played a cab driver. And so he wound up playing a lot of tennis and never working, and, or working just a few days because his part got cut, basically. Is that difficult to make a schedule when the script is so up in the air in terms uh, of what you're shooting day yeah, to day? Yeah, I and mean, you just have to be fast on your feet. And I mean, we'd work six days a week and scout on the seventh day. And uh, we had as access to every, any place in the city we wanted and 
we were able to use the personnel in the movie. Like, say we were shooting in a morgue, we'd use the morgue attendants, or same in the hospital, or wherever we were, we just used real people. So we had that opportunity. And it, in the beginning, we weren't, we weren't going to ever have a set, which we never did, so it was all actual locations. Nothing was ever built? And, no, uh, nothing. And, and there were no special effects, I mean, other than real effects that you did, you know, you know we did at the time, but other than to slow the camera down or speed it up, uh, there was nothing, no tricks. Yeah. So, I was going to ask earlier, did, uh, did McQueen do any driving during the shooting of that sequence, or was yeah. it partially stunt driving? No, it was most, it was the, all the hairy stuff was stunt drivers, mainly because uh, he wanted to do more, but the studio refused to let him because of the risk to him and us. And uh, so he did do wherever there was sort of what we call a money shot where we could design a shot where he go by in a close-up or something and show his prowess, we do that. And he was also deaf in one ear. And uh, one, um, one time we were going to do such a shot where he came screeching around a corner past camera and off. And um, he, he was all getting all revved up and so he went back to the starting place and I said we're still setting up cameras you're going to have to wait if he says that's okay I'll wait <laughs> and then he heard something on the radio and he said did you say go and I said no I, said, no, I didn't say go because he was deaf and he couldn't hear and so he's all of a sudden here he comes like coming 90 miles an hour around the corner and there's a camera assistant that was setting up a camera in the street because um and I wasn't completely set up. And he yeah. saw McQueen coming, barreling down, and then he just he flicked on the camera and, and j jumped, and McQueen came by and hit the camera, Ooh. obliterated the camera, and kept going. And um, that shot's in the movie, you see it. There's, there's a shot where he's coming right at camera, and it goes black, and that's the shot. So. I mean, Oh, so the film survived, even though the camera yeah, was... Yeah, the uh, magazine made it, so, <laughs> so we got the shot. I mean, the editor used the shot, so up to the last frame, so... Yeah. But there was a lot of winging it, and so we just... It taught me, I mean, that was... Uh, I couldn't, couldn't have had a better training for myself. I was only... I was the first AD in 20 year, 27 years old, so I was like one of the youngest people to ever do the job. And here I am on this eight pictures. I mean, I, had, I was learning every day as I yeah. went. So. Uh, when I spoke to Hawk Koch, um, he was telling me during the 1960s, 1970s, uh, there weren't really production assistants on a set. No. It was mostly just the ADs. That's it. Oh, there was a lot less staff than there is now. I mean... Now there's 15 producers and yeah. everybody's got a radio and running around bumping into each other. <laughs> and uh, I, if you want to get to the 70s, I'll jump to that. But, oh, but I was wondering, uh, sort of, do you see that as a positive or negative, how the what? crew of a film has gotten bigger over time? Negative. Or negative? Because, um, well, especially in the 70s, of uh, you know about BBS and all of that. Yeah, Columbia and... Well, yeah, uh, Bert 
Schneider was the son of Abe Schneider, who was the head of Columbia. But they were the ones that did Easy Rider. And um, he was sort of the gourmet version of Roger Corman. I mean, he did these tasty little movies for a million bucks. And then... Uh, oh, like Last Picture Show and uh, uh, yeah, Five like, Easy Pieces. Yeah, and then I did one with them called The King of Marvin Gardens with Nicholson and Ellen Burstyn. Uh, but anyway, those those were all done on a shoestring budget, and basically we'd have one one or two trucks and a bus, and like Jack on that. And we were in Atlantic City, and I mean Nicholson would dress himself in his room, make sure he had all his props, and jump on the bus with us, and that's how we worked. And oh, was, so you didn't have a wardrobe person or a prop master? Well, we did, or, but, uh, but he, they'd say, here's your clothes, put them yeah. on in the morning. <laughs> and we didn't have a honey wagon, we didn't have trailers, we wow. didn't have any of that. And it was all fun. it was great, I mean, it was perfectly fine. And then, like, uh, I think it was, oh, Kovacs was a cameraman. Oh, Lazlo yeah. Kovacs. Yeah. And so, you know, but... Everybody moved like lightning, and it looked great, and it all worked fine. So, uh, I think the the bigger it gets, the the more problems you're going to have because you have more people with more egos, and uh, you know if somebody has a trailer that's 40 feet long, there's <laughs> going to be another actor that once that's 42 feet long. You know, so yeah, you, you start running into all of these kind of problems. Yeah. I guess without uh, without not uh, naming names, but uh, what are sort of some of the problems that you may have with actors, you know, as all the films you've worked with that sort of come up that are sort of unexpected? Or Well, some of them go nuts on you in the middle of the day. <laughs> I mean, literally. Uh, I just Some are very un unpredictable. Some are, are just workhorses. It's hard to say. There's no sort of norm. I mean, sometimes there's legitimate reasons when somebody gets sick or, you know, unforeseen events happen. Somebody gets hurt on the set, there's tons of things. But I mean, there, I've had my share of people who just didn't want to show up and stuff. I've been on movies where uh, actors wouldn't come out of the tra trailer and I had to go mm. sue, sue them and say, it's all right, you can, <laughs> you know. You are getting $5 million for two weeks. Maybe you can <laughs> grace us with your presence, you know. So I'd have to, it was, it's like being a psychiatrist, really. It's, it's... Uh, do they sometimes go to the AD more, uh, do they go to the AD first, sort of over the who? director? Uh, like an, if an actor has a problem, have you it's, seen it's, that? It's just, it's just like a family. It just yeah. depends on the relationship. I worked on one movie where the director wouldn't talk to one of the stars and says, you know, tell him this, tell him that. And uh, so I had the relationship with the actor and the director didn't, you know, I mean, it's, it's all different permutations. Yeah. Then, but I mean, I think the main thing of being good at being an AD um, is being able to think ahead and to keep everybody flowing and moving forward, you know, so you get the best out of each day's work. Yeah. So. Uh, do you ever prefer your director to have a shot list going into the shoot, or would, does it, 
does that matter to you at all in terms no. of organization for the day? Um, well, because a lot of them have one that they don't follow, and then after the first shot, they throw it out the window. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's nice to have. I mean, there's people that use have shot lists that have come in with storyboards and then don't follow the storyboards. And yeah. Other people that are slavishly trying to follow a storyboard that isn't going to work and spend too much time trying to make it work. So yeah. it just it, it just really depends on the person, you know. Uh, well, favorite film of mine is uh, Colonel Knowledge, oh, yeah. uh, which was directed by Mike Nichols. Yeah. Uh, what was it like working with Mike Nichols, and uh, right. how was that production? Um, well, I love. I think he's a terrific talent, a very nice guy, and I was felt very privileged to be the first on that picture. And so I, you know, I felt it was a real honor to work with him. He's uh, demanding in a very kind of quiet way, but I mean, he likes he likes everything to be like the theater where where he has complete control, and nobody is anywhere basically, and uh, he just wants to be him and his actors, and that he can't stand noise, and he can, I mean, at least in that instance, anyway, and um, so we were shooting for months on a soundstage in Vancouver, you know, in that kind of way, <clears throat> and uh, I will tell a slightly amusing story here, but uh, Joe Levine was the producer, or the financier, and uh, so we were running way over schedule, way over budget, you know, it's just going on and on and on, on the simple, in, you know, it's a simple location thing. And uh, the, what we used to do, we were shooting French hours, which I don't know if you know what that is. It's, when, when you shoot eight straight hours without a break and everybody goes home. Mm -hmm. So you don't stop for a meal. Which, so... We were shooting French hours, but with Nichols, he wanted to have a bit of a break, so we'd have a two-hour lunch in the middle of this French hours. <laughs> so, uh, and then we'd have a, he'd show the crew what he wanted, and we'd, where they light it and do whatever. Then everybody kick get kicked out while they rehearsed. And then so all the crew had places where they would go and do things, either basketball or playing chess or cards or whatever. And so there was this long corridor where the, all the crew would sort of hang out waiting to be called back in. And um, So the set was very private, just yeah, the actors it was, it was and the just director. Like, it was me and Peppino Rotuno, the cameraman, and the mic guy, and that would be it, the script. So, and then, so uh, we kept going over schedule, over budget, over schedule, over budget. So... Joe Levine decided to, he was going to put his foot down and come on the set and confront Nichols and say, hey, you know, what is this, basically. So the day that Aaron, he flew in with his entourage and he was going to be coming to the set and we were re rehearsing and all the crew was kicked out and it was just me and Nichols and the actors and so forth. So uh, Levine walks through the down the hall with all the people playing chess and basketball and everything like that and having a great time goes into the set and the door opens and here he is with his entourage way at the other end it's all black 
he's trying to find his way around and Nichols says to me he says go tell him this, he can't be here it's a close set <laughs> and uh, I said well it's Joe Levine he says I don't care just tell him <laughs> tell him he's it's a close set and to leave so I, I had to walk the whole length of this black lonely thing to go tell Joe Levine sorry sir but this is a close set and I, so I said that and he says I don't think you understand I'm Joe Levine and I said well I'm sorry it's a close set what can I tell you and then he, he looked past me over to Nichols who was way in the back and the Nichols were like you know what can I do you know he's in charge meaning me you know so like you know I just work here kind of thing so that that's kind of how Nick, Nichols was and I did have a chance to work with him again as a production manager on the Day of the Dolphin too. So. so that's sort of an interesting style that he worked in, uh, where he would rehearse for a long yeah. period of time and then shoot the scene. Yeah. Almost, it is very theatrical in terms yeah. of, I mean, he came from a theater right. background. So was that like a very unusual setup to really... Uh, for him? Or, or just in general, it's like rehearse for so many hours and then... Well, it's very luxurious. I mean, yeah. nobody really that I knew of could afford to do such a thing. I mean, like Billy Wilder on Kiss Me Stupid would... He had um, his film editor on the set and his diamond on the set, his partner. And then he, he would... He wouldn't start before 9 o'clock, so the, he would show up at 8.30 and in his chair had to be the coffee and the two trades and he'd read the trades and then he'd drink his coffee and then nobody could talk to him and then at nine he says okay I'm ready to start and he'd get, bring the actors in and again he would rehearse for say two hours, hour and a half, two hours so up until like 10.45 we'd be rehearsing and it would always be these very complicated shots that would be like five pages of dialogue and moving here and moving there and then so he'd give it to the camera and he says you got it Joe and he says yeah I got it and he says how long do you think and he'd say oh three hours he said okay and then he'd go to Beverly Hills for lunch but he would always <laughs> he would design the shot so time it so that the rehearsal would there was no way to shoot the shot before lunch yeah. basically so he could go so he'd go off and have a fancy <laughs> lunch and say, you know what time do you want me back, Joe? And he'd say, oh, three. And then, so we'd, uh, he'd come back at three and we'd shoot the scene and he'd say, all right, I might need a close-up, so give me a bit for where she's over at the closet and that'll be it, you know. And we would have shot five pages that was brilliantly done. And, yeah. Uh, no pain, no strain. So, so everybody works differently, you know. I know exactly. Like, George Stevens would shoot uh, 12 versions of the same scene, so it was very laborious, it was just the opposite, so it's hard to say. Yeah. As an AD, do you feel that you're more in service to the director or the producer? Well, definitely the director. Yeah. For sure. But I, but I mean, a lot of times you'd be caught in the middle where the producer would say, you know, let's get push him push the director to do this and you try to balance it out but yeah. I, but if there was a issue of loyalty it was always to the director I'd say yeah uh, 
Another uh, really interesting film is Day of the Locust, and uh, two sort of really interesting uh, scenes in that film. Uh, one is on the soundstage when that giant set collapses. Yeah. And then the last scene of the film, the movie premiere on Hollywood Boulevard, where right. Donald Sutherland uh, stomps on the little boy, yeah. and that chaos breaks out, and it becomes a sort of surreal fantasy. That, right. Uh, so what those two scenes, what were those like to organize? They seem very, uh, a lot of moving pieces. Yeah, well, okay. That, I mean, my forte as an assistant was background action, I guess you could say, or I became known for that. And um, so with the latter one, with I remember he was no good at that stuff. So he, I remember him rehearsing the actors. Oh, John Schlesinger? Yeah. Or, yeah. So we... We were doing the scene, the Grauman scene, and or he rehearsed the actors, and he's said to, to me after the race, says, "Okay, right, uh, organize me a riot. I'm going to be in my dressing room," <laughs> and that and that's what uh, for like two days. That's like what I did, you know. So I organized the whole thing and then showed it to him two days later, and that's what we shot. In, in terms of the mountain, what was, actually, I don't know how funny this is, but anyway, what happened, <clears throat> the, in, in the film, the, the mountain collapses, there's a big shrine and everybody gets hurt, and the studio guys come in and say, how long is it going to be before we get back up on our feet, all that stuff. So we went to shoot this thing, and all the stuntmen go running up, and the set's pre-rigged to collapse. It does. It hurts all the stuntmen, mm. just like in the movie. And they're all going, ow, oh, wow. And we had like 12 ambulances come to haul people away. And the production manager for Paramount came over and says, oh, you know, how long is this going to set us back? Mm -hmm. So it, was, it, it mirrored the scene in the movie. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was actually kind of funny. What are the what are the uh, the challenges of having so many background extras that you have to coordinate, uh, especially in like that end premiere scene in uh, in the movie? Well, I don't think it's a, for me. It wasn't a challenge because I I think you can't have too many voices telling people what to do. So yeah, uh, the, I would take charge and be the one telling them what to do, and part of it started by. Getting them all together and sort of just talking to them like humans and rather than say, you go here and run over there and fall down. I mean, I explain the context of what we were doing and, you know, give them some background so that they could individually figure some of it out for themselves, you know, and then I would strategically place certain people where there was going to be key action and then sort of, it's sort of like building a set or something, I don't know. Yeah. It, uh, it wasn't, it didn't, wasn't hard for me after a while because I got, I was so used to it, doing it. Was that all shot on location, the uh, the Chinese theater? No, it was the sound stage. We had a big sound stage and we built the whole thing. Oh, the whole exterior of the, yeah. of the theater, wow. And then it was, but it was inside and we had problems with the cars idling so we had to have the doors open and stuff. That must have been like a massive set. I mean, you yeah, can see it, it in the film. It was uh, two or three sound stages with the doors opened up. Wow. 
And uh, also in that scene, there's a lot of like heavy violence. Is that difficult to coordinate as well? Just uh, in terms of people like pushing each other out of the way and not really. No, no. I mean it's um, if if you're doing a tighter shot, then it's a very controlled thing, and the stunt guy comes in and does a lot of it. Yeah, no, it's not a problem. Uh, and then another uh, favorite of mine, uh, which I believe you line produced, was Straight Time uh, with yeah. Dustin Hoffman. Right. Uh, so did you, were you any part of a creative producer on that? or were Yeah, you sort of... I was, but I mean, I was a producer-producer. I don't ever know what this line thing means. I mean, I know they call people that, but I was, I was hired by him to be the producer when he was, uh, he was let's face it, the producer because it was through first artists, which was his company, so he had complete control of the situation. Yeah. Uh, and he, when I started, he was gonna direct and star in it. And uh, I, would, I was hired by him to sort of just take him through the process and be by his side and, you know, advised him on what to do I mean so he basically fired himself as a director after doing trying to do three days up in Folsom prison so um, he realized it was too, too big a task for him to do both jobs and correctly decided to step away from doing it and brought in Ulu we brought in Ulu Gross Party was his, had been a mentor of his when he was a stage manager in New York. Yeah. He directed a lot of theater productions, I believe, too, right? Did. He's yeah. dead now. Poor guy. Nice guy. Very nice. So uh, uh, we tried to get Sidney Pollock, and Sidney didn't want to do it, so we got Hulu. Yeah. And I believe on that film, uh, the actual inspiration, the, the character uh, that Dustin Hoffman was playing, he was sort of like a he was an advisor on the film. He was kind of Eddie, a career, yeah, Eddie Bunker. Edward Bunker. Yeah, He's kind I, of a career criminal. Well, yeah, after he, I first talked to Eddie when he was still in jail. He did the book called No Be So Fierce, which became Straight Time. So um, he was an advisor on the movie, and he was an actor in the movie. And he became a friend of mine after that. And... Um, but he went on, he, from then on, he wasn't a criminal anymore, either. He, so he served his time, and that was the end of it for him. Um, but, I mean, he, he wrote a bunch of books about yeah. life, the life of a criminal and stuff. Mostly autobiographical stuff. And uh, what was interesting on that film, there was the, uh, the the bank robbery scene and also a lot of uh, scenes that were sort of in a prison. Did you shoot in real prisons for for most of it? Yeah, uh, we were in, I think in, in pre-production, I went up with a fe one of the, this female writer, what's her name, I can't remember her name, um, to, to Quentin for the day. And so, again, for whatever reason, they let us have the run of the place. So they locked us in Quentin on death row. And the death row inmates were our guests, or treating us as their guests for the day. And the one, oh, was Nancy Dowd was her name, the writer. And the one thing they had said to us under no circumstances were 
uh, blue jeans because we won't be able to distinguish you from the prisoners. Don't do that. So of course she did. She, so we, she went around all day, the only woman in this place dressed in blue jeans. So um, to answer your question, the, uh, yes, we shot in Folsom, I think, and some other. And we shot at various county jails, too, as I remember. Wow. And uh, I believe the bank robbery scene was actually in a real bank. Is that yeah. true? Was that logistically a little difficult to actually close a, a bank down at all? No, so if you have their cooperation, that's not a problem. Yeah. But, uh, you know, a lot of times you just have to work out a schedule uh, where you're not in their way, and we do it after they closed, you know, their business. So, I mean, we just worked when it was okay for them. But, um, but going back to Bullet, I mean, we were on every kind of location you could be, you know, from the emergency room of the hospital to God knows what. And we never had, the only time I ever had a problem was at the Mark Hopkins Hotel where I asked some guests if they'd mind staying in the elevator while I got the shot. And again, they said, screw you, we're lost. <laughs> uh, that was the only time I ever had a problem. But I mean, I mean most of these places, if this, long as you work it out up front and you're clear about what you're going to do, uh, it's okay, you know. Yeah. And uh, did you ever sort of plan on making a transition from being an AD to a producer? Or did that just sort of happen In that case, I naturally. did plan it. Yeah. Um, I, I was an AD for about six or seven years, and then I became a production manager, which I knew I didn't want to die as one. I wanted to keep going into some other thing. So but I was a production manager, and at a certain point I just said, it's enough, I'm through with this, and I'm going to either do, be a producer or get out of the business. So, and that's, and then uh, picture, Dustin's picture was the first time I was hired as a producer. Because so. initially he wanted me to be the production manager, and I said, no, I wouldn't do that. And I, I also turned down Apocalypse Now at the same time to, as a production manager. So, um, so on straight time, I made yeah. the transition. And then uh, you also produced, uh, I believe it was Michael Mann's first uh, directing uh, for feature Mile. for television, Jericho Mile. Yeah. Uh, how did you get involved in that project? And uh, uh, Mike, I met Michael independently through a mutual friend who was a producer of TV, and he was just starting out in Hollywood, and I think he was uh, writing for Starsky and Hutch, and he was looking to get into features, and I met him as a writer wanting to write features. And so uh, it was on straight time, and I, I got him a job as a, to do a rewrite on straight time. So I, that's how I met him. He, he did a, while we were shooting, he did a rewrite. And then he got the chance to do um, Jericho Mile, and then he asked me if I produce it. So I did. And... Uh, um, in fact, he asked me when I was on in Bora Bora for eight months on this weird picture, and uh, 
that I got a call from him that would I go to Folsom Prison do this. <laughs> so I went from Bora Bora to Folsom Prison from yeah. one day to the next. Yeah, it was all two uh, prison-type films in yeah. a row, uh, Jericho Mile and Straight Time. And then, I mean, I did a third one that never got made that I was developing myself. And, um, and I basically went, I have been to every prison on the West Coast this point and and when I was going around doing research for this one thing I'd walk into one place and the inmates say hey Tim how's it going have you seen so and so and I'd get phone calls from these guys you know like a collect call from so and so from Folsom hey how's it going they'd talk to me for hours so, so I got to know all of the convicts uh, when you became a creative producer, um, yeah. did you still like to have a hand in the actual physical production of a film, or did you ever yeah. delegate out? Well, I would be have been happy, but I mean, that's how I'd get things made, is I had to, like Hawk Koch, I can't call him Hawk, he's Howard. <laughs> but uh, um, we we had similar career paths, basically, so... I mean, basically, we both learned all it practically how to make movies, so that's something that studios would kind of insist that we continue to do on a day-to-day basis. I mean, Jerry Bruckheimer is another one that has a, has a good working knowledge of the day-to-day operation. So. Uh, he produced a film that I think you were an AD on. Uh, it was um, Farewell, my Farewell, Lovely. my lovely. I was the yeah. production manager. On production it. manager. Yeah, yeah. So I first met him there. So he just come out from New York, I think. Yeah, I believe that was a. Uh, it was like a Philip Marlowe detective. Yeah. Sort of adaptation, Robert Mitchum. Right. Exactly. In there. Yeah, that was another example. It was in the early seventies, and there was no work in town, so we had like probably the best crew you could humanly put together and uh, we didn't have a lot of money to make it so it was all you know had to do it with spit and glue and Dean Tabularis was a production designer is to my mind one of the most brilliant did a lot of Coppola's uh, movies yeah I mean he's just beyond brilliant I think and so he you know, again, we'd have to find these 30s places and fix them up with a little paint and a little of this and that. And he found everything. It was just amazing. What was uh, Robert Mitchum like uh, to work with uh, back then? He's, you know, funny, weird. <laughs> uh, I mean, I knew him from growing up. His kids went to my school, and I kind of knew him that way. But uh, I did two or three movies with him, I think. But he, he was fine. Uh, and then there was a movie uh, that you did with, I believe it was Kevin Co- one of Kevin Costner's first leading roles, uh, Fandango. I did, oh yeah. Yeah. And, I yeah, I... Kevin I, Reynolds uh, wrote and directed that. Yeah, I mean, I, a part of what it seemed to happen, what happened to me is that I worked a lot with first-time directors, the first one being Michael Mann, uh, Kevin Reynolds, Tim Hunter... Uh, different ones and to sort of to be there to help them guide them along the path you know so yeah uh, that was Kevin's first feature for Spielberg 
Spielberg's company. And I, I think I was the one that suggested Kevin for it, Costner, because he, up until that point, he'd been the guy that always came in for a reading to read with other actors, but would, you know, would just be hired for the day and uh, would never get the part and just, so, but I knew that he was a really talented guy, so I, I got him to come in for that, so. And so you've worked with so many first-time directors. Um, mm -hmm. Is there sort of any learning curve that you see common among all the first-time directors that you've worked with that you've sort of had to help them uh, establish? Well, I think a lot of a lot of them sort of have shoot the movie about five hundred times in their head before they ever get to do it, and that becomes so rigidly fixed in their mind that if anything deviates from what they envision in their head, they kind of lose it, you know, so they can't vamp. They don't know how to vamp or yeah. change gears or do things differently if something's not working, you know. And I'd say that was kind of a common problem for most of them. Sort of not being able to kind of compromise when things well, change. Knowing how to, even if they wanted to, if not quite being able to figure out a B plan if the A plan doesn't work. Uh, you know. uh, and then one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, early films, The Running Man, you would also produce. I believe that was from a Stephen King book. Yeah, yeah. He he had written under uh, Richard Bachman, I think. Was it. But uh, yeah, it, it was it was actually The Hunger Games was a lot like Running Man. The I mean the idea of the story, the original idea of the story was was an everyman character who who was. A, a working class poor guy who was an everyman guy, and he had a very sick daughter with life-threatening disease, and he had no money, and he wanted to save his daughter's life, and so he went on this. He sacrificed himself to go on this game, and and as he went along, he sort of gained popularity and strength, and everybody got behind him. So it, it really wasn't a Arnold Schwarzenegger type. It was. Just a little mousy guy from somewhere, you know, that became a superhero. So it was a bit of a stretch to have Arnold play this. But did that sort of develop based on Arnold Schwarzenegger's cachet at the time? To sort of. I don't know. I think he had done some other pictures that made him a big star. I don't know that Running Man did. I I don't think it did that well actually. But it was kind of a mess making the thing. It was, but uh, we got through it, so. And then uh, uh, one of uh, John Frankenheimer's last films, uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which I believe had Marlon Brando, Val Kilmer, uh, sort of an interesting science fiction movie. Uh, what were sort of your experiences working on that? Um, what was the original director's name, do you remember? Uh, David somebody. Oh, so John Frankenheimer had replaced the, he replaced the guy. Uh, I'm blanking with this, and I shouldn't be doing that. But anyway, I was just prior to that experience. How I got involved with that is I had I had stopped movies altogether, and I was working as a commercial photographer. And I got a call, a panic call. Could I go to Thailand? This picture was running way over budget, and could I? Would I do it? And I said, all right. And that was a picture called Street Fighter. 
and uh, for Pressman's films. And so I, I wound up doing that and stopping my photography career. And um, even though I didn't want to get back in the business, I figured it would just be 10 weeks, but it wasn't. So um, anyway, I did this Street Fighter thing and finished it off and got a relationship going with Pressman, I guess. And so that's how I got involved with Dr. Moreau. And again, it was uh, Richard Stanley, that's the guy's name. So the, it was a young director named Richard Stanley. Stanley had written the script and gotten, gotten Brando to be in it. And because of that, New Line came aboard. And at that point, I got involved with Stanley. So to, to so there was like an eight-month prep time. And he was a, uh, Richard was obviously very, not obviously, but he was very nervous about working with Brando get everything just right so he would hold himself up with a sketch artist that he knew and for, literally for eight months just do storyboards and we when he came to shooting he basically froze and he couldn't he couldn't do it and Kilmer didn't want to work with him and told me so he said I'm not going to work with this guy so I mean it just became this yeah. chaotic mess and then so we had to, or New Line saw what he shot and said, okay, thanks, and next. And we found Frankenheimer, who was just getting back into the business again. And so Frankenheimer took over that picture as, and did the best that he could with it, which wasn't good enough, but he tried. <laughs> What was uh, John Frankenheimer like to work with as a director? I mean, he has such a, a long filmography of amazing films. Um, I mean, I had a very good... I liked the guy. He's a kind of old, the old school, and uh, no problem for me. I'm kind of from the Yeller Screamer school, but I mean, I got along fine with him, and some of the people, his crew didn't. They hated him, but... Um, because of that fact, and he, he sort of loudly insults people at lunch and says it's the worst crew I've ever seen, and, you know, goddamn so-and-so. But uh, so they didn't really like him. But From what I've read, he's uh, he was sort of always more into the actors on set and less with actual crew members. In a no, he, was, he, could, he, he got sort of overly involved in mechanical things like crane dolly movements and which crane to use and you know use this kind of a floating head and not that so he I'd say he'd get involved with everything yeah. pretty much and uh, with Marlon Brando yeah. um, so I mean you know legend has it he always sort of had an earpiece with lines oh, being yeah. fed to him and yeah. he would write like sort of cue cards on various things around the room was that the case yeah. in uh, Dr. Moreau? Yeah well I mean I think in Godfather he uh, started out uh, this, this may be myth or, I don't know I don't verify its accuracy but <laughs> what I heard at the time was that he would write his lines on the forehead of the other actor because yeah. he couldn't remember his lines and the other actor got pissed off said don't you can't do that <laughs> and so he had them taped to the ceiling and that's why you'd always see him you know, yeah. He'll be looking up like this. There was a great onset photo um, I found from The Godfather with yeah. Robert Duvall had all the lines like yeah. pasted on his body. Yeah, 
Ron Brando. They, they got tired of that. <laughs> so, but then they put it on the ceiling. But in the case of uh, Moreau, yeah, he had it was more sophisticated. He had a ear thing, and he had his assistant, who used to be his girlfriend, I think Carolyn was her name, in his trailer, <laughs> feeding him the lines. And then, so she would always feed him the lines. He'd say the lines, and that would be it. Then one time he stopped in the middle. He says, "God damn it, Carolyn." I told you stop acting. <laughs> so, yeah, but that was his. I don't know why he did it that way, but he, that's what he did. Uh, did you always? Did you have it in mind to sort of transition from film making to photography, or did that sort it of? It was the develop? other way around. I mean, yeah. from the time I was seven, I wanted to be a photographer. But my father sort of uh, put the damper on that one. And I was just more my whole career has really not been by design, it's just by, you know, somebody calling me up and saying you want to go to Rome and say, okay, <laughs> sure, why not? That's, uh, I think, remember somebody asked Buck Henry, how do you write a script? When he was giving a talk and he said, how do you write a screenplay? And he said, well, the best way is first you think of a place that you'd like to go to that you've never been and then you write about it. And I think that's kind of my approach, was my approach to movies, was just try to work with the best people I could on interesting projects and yeah. go to nice places like Folsom Prison. <laughs> what do you think has been uh, the proudest moment of your career or a particular project that you feel you're the most proud of? Bullet. Bullet. And the reason is that we, well, part of, part of it was I was very young. And a lot of, and uh, the other reason was we all had, we were thinking on our feet, you know, seven days a week. And everybody was working as a team. And everybody was doing their absolute best and took great pride in what they were doing. And, uh, you know, they were just, it was, it was just a wonderful experience working with with all these people together like that it was just, and I, I think the end result was was I was proud of that what we did yeah. and I know how hard it was I remember how hard it was and I mean I mean there would be we had a, a rigging crew electrical crew that had five electrical trucks and they would lay out like <laughs> one time at the airport five miles of cable at night and then they'd have to pick it all, wrap it at the end of the night. So they would, we would shoot, and it was winter, so we'd have long, we'd start at five and finish at six, and then they'd have to come in and wrap five miles of cable, and then do it again the next day, you know, so that was the kind of effort that went into this. And the film speed was slow, it was like 100 ASA or ISO, whatever you want to call it. So it required a lot of lighting yeah, to so, get an exposure. Yeah, and then uh, Fraker, the cameraman, we were shooting with Aeroflexes, and he got Nikon lenses that were f.8 lenses, so very fast lenses, but we still had a 100 ASA film, which was considered fast in those days, but we had to have a lot of light. <laughs> so, But it was just the coordination of everybody working together and thinking on their feet and it's like one time they we were shooting in the basement of the hospital which 
went for miles and uh, we were chasing McQueen and somebody down this corridor and we didn't have a lot of time and we couldn't really lay the dolly track. And then everybody's scratching their head and the key grip went off somewhere and came back with a block of ice and put the camera on a hi-hat on the block of ice and that was our dolly and so I just slid just like two grips running with the camera on a ice piece of ice, you know. So it was that kind of invention that went on. So I was, I'm very proud of that. And probably one of the most famous uh, car chases in, you know, in all the movies. Bullet. Yeah, I think for its day. I'm, I'm sure it's been, been a lot better ones now, but I mean, in, in its day, it was as good as you could get. So.